0: Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer and aspiring software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. We often talk on the show about software development methodologies such as Agile or Waterfall. However, we haven't gotten into the project management process or stages of software development underlying them. In this episode, we're going to look at the software development lifecycle. We'll start talking about what it is and the methodologies involved. Then we'll spend most of our time talking about the seven stages of software development. But before we get started, Will, what have you been fighting this week? Well, dude, I'm oscillating back and forth a lot on Angular.
1: Like, I'll like it for a while, and then I hate it for a while. And I'm liking it now.
0: Hmm.
1: You know, as far as, like, what kind of headaches I have with it, it just feels like you go to a point and you hit the wall for a while, and you just can't quite make stuff happen when you need it to, and then you get through it. Wouldn't that be, like, teetering on the angle? Maybe it is, yeah. Teetering on so, the angu- Angular of yeah, the angle of Angular, um, but <laughs> sorry. Yeah, it I, you know it's it's weird. I'm I feel like I got suddenly more productive with it about three or four days ago mm-hmm. again, and it's like it's all making sense, and I'm you know I'm grokking it, and I'm able to make changes and know whether I'm going to have to completely reload the app or not. <laughs> it's starting to click for me again. It's weird. Yeah. I feel this way about most front end frameworks, honestly. You know, like every time I've messed with any of them, it's been like this.
0: Yes, it has at least as long as I have known you, yeah, and talked to you about tech stuff in depth. I was gonna say you've, you've <laughs> there
1: weren't JavaScript frameworks when we met <laughs> there was <laughs> JavaScript, and <laughs> there were things you did to make it work in Netscape and things you made it do to work in i e it wasn't
0: like now, yeah yeah where, no, um like I just remember this is a a common pattern with you,
1: yeah, well, I don't overly like front end anyway, mhm-. Because of just the the complexity, a lot of times that I feel like is put there because we're using a markup language for stuff that
0: it maybe isn't made for, really. So how about you? I am currently enjoying a fun little blend that I call a Farmer's Daughter. So Amanda, my girlfriend, works at Mill Creek, and they have two beers that I really like, Silo, which is a farmhouse ale, and Little Darlin'. Uh, which is one of their their main ones, and so I blended them. It's about a sixty forty blend, and it's really good. I know a lot of people like. Not everybody likes farmhouse ales, but when you blend in the little darling, like the sweetness of it, just really make like it makes it pop. So I'm sitting here enjoying that. We started a new project at work, a big new project, not just one of the little one offs that I've been doing recently which is really cool because I'm going to be one of the primary API developers on this project. So I've been invited to some of the preliminary planning meetings. For example, I was in a meeting last week where I was the only person not in a managerial role. And it was not a one-on-one. Yeah, clarify that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) This was like, they brought me in as like the I was kind of a blend of developer and subject matter expert on some of the services that we have built that I've been maintaining. Uh, it's really cool because I don't normally get involved in these high-level meetings. Like we're discussing the direction of a project and how it will interact with one that a vendor is building. You know, I made some suggestions. You know, it's been really cool. One of the suggestions I made, the business architect just absolutely loved it and ran with the idea, and now that's what we're doing. It's really cool, but it's a bit overwhelming to see the process that goes on before a project typically gets down to the developer level. This episode totally came about because I was watching training videos on the software development lifecycle to understand these processes that I'm being involved in and sitting there watching them yesterday. I was like, this would make a really good episode. So of course I've been very busy lately. I've told you guys about everything that I've got going on and, you know, just trying to find time to spend with Amanda and stuff. I kind of like have pushed episode writing off to the side and do it when I can. So I had pushed it off to the last minute, to be honest with you. And, uh, I was like, that would make a great episode. I started writing it, and I just cranked this thing out. I was really into it and excited, so I'm looking forward to diving into this episode. But before that, let's jump on into Book Club. The penultimate chapter, 11, of The Healthy Programmer, Get Fit, Feel Better, and Keep Coding by Joe Kuttner is about teaming up. In the intro, Kuttner talks about a dream job where all health-related services were available on site. The first section is called message passing. Kuttner starts off by assigning the goal of hosting a lunch and learn for your coworkers based on a single chapter in the book. The idea is one we've discussed on the show several times, that by teaching, you are learning the material even better. In the next section, he talks about investing in your health and how healthy employees are better employees. And He provides six pillars to an effective wellness program. The first one is get the boss involved. Use carrots, get personal, make it free, partner up and then send a strong message next he goes into playing well with others and describes how to play dodgeball every developer's favorite middle school pastime <laughs> yeah i could visualize a dodgeball and feel it and smell it yes <laughs> you know, like getting hit in the face with it In the final section, Building a Better Team, he talks about the psychology behind building a team and offers three goals for team building. Give the team a name, compete with other teams, and set group goals. The takeaways from this chapter are to discuss your health with others and show your enthusiasm for becoming healthier. I'll have a link to this book in the show notes. Who's talking to us this week?
1: we grabbed a iTunes review from SDJ Baby saying, good for anyone new in IT. I'm a computer information systems student graduating in May. So I've been doing all the things that I need to do so that I can get a good entry level development job afterwards. So listening to a lot of the episodes with topics on personal development outside of education has been so helpful for me. Since I worked most of college and had to support myself, I didn't get a lot of time to work on personal projects or anything outside of school. So I'm having to put the recruiter's microscope on my personality and ability to learn and work with people very well. And listening to this podcast has given me so many good pointers, especially the LinkedIn and social
0: anxiety episodes. We're really glad that we could help out. And I really enjoyed the LinkedIn episode with Amber and Will opening up last April on like just overcoming his, his own issues with being shyness and introverted and then we talk and then us talking about social anxiety is just... Was that last April or was that two Aprils ago? That was last April, I think. Yeah, it's weird. It feels like another life. I know. <laughs> so much so much happens over the year and actually I'm getting to write the uh, April 1st episode this year. That's a you little are. bit of a change. Tried to get someone who uh, turned us down, but uh, we'll talk about that April 1st. We are really glad that we could help out. The whole point of this podcast is growth in all areas. Hence the name Complete Developer Podcast. I know we joke about that was the available URL when we were looking for a podcast, but we were also looking at what we wanted to convey. And that was a big thing. I
1: think the the name almost <laughs> drug it towards that too, you know? It's like my my neighbor growing up with you know would say that you know you you give a dog a good name and you'll have a good dog. Of course, his dog's name was garbage because they found him in a dumpster and they never changed the name. But
0: you know, it was good advice, even if maybe he wasn't living it. Maybe it was advice from experience. Could be, no. So send us an email to water at complete developer because we've got a complete developer water bottle just for you guys. I, I want to say something. We got an email from someone in Scotland who had won a water bottle and she's like, Oh, Hey, I, I don't know if, uh, if you guys can send it all the way over here. We changed our provider for where we got our water bottles and the water bottles a little bit. So we could ship them to more places internationally. So if you have won a water bottle, if we've read your comment on the show and you haven't sent us an email because you're like, oh, well, I live in this country, that country, and it's too much for them, we send them all over the globe. So send us an email because we want to make sure you get your water bottle. If you haven't and you'd like a Complete Developer water bottle, Leave us a review on iTunes or comment on the website or any of our social media. We post all our episodes to Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. We're also on Instagram and Tumblr. I know I try to post on Instagram when I can remember, but I'm not the best and we're on Tumblr is is Tumblr still a thing? Yeah, I think I mean I yeah. haven't been there in ever yeah <laughs> i need to I need to hop on and see if I if we've got any uh comments on there. As you can join the conversation anytime via Slack by going to slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Your advertisement could be here. If you like the show and would like to advertise on here, send us an email to adverts at completedeveloperpodcast.com. We have short-term, long-term, and other sponsorship opportunities. Reach out to us and let us help you Reach the people who you are serving.
1: The Software Development Lifecycle, or SDLC, is a process for designing and building quality software. The goal is high-quality software that meets the customer's needs. It also takes into account the amount of time needed to develop the software along with the cost of that development. This includes the cost of developer hours, uh, software licenses, operations, and system requirements. It is a detailed plan to not only build, but also maintain software. And each stage in the lifecycle has its own inputs, processes, and outputs.
0: The SDLC offers a basis for project planning, scheduling, and estimating, as well as providing a framework for a standard set of activities and deliverables. It is designed for project tracking and control so that it increases visibility of project planning to all involved in the development process, from stakeholders to developers and QA. The SDLC
1: underlies many of the most popular project management methodologies. It's the base class, if you will, of project management from which many methodologies inherit. One of the most well-known and misunderstood of these is waterfall. This is the oldest and one of the simplest methodologies. Each stage must be completed before the next one begins and it waterfalls into the next one. The biggest issue is that a small error or detail missed can hold up the entire project.
0: The next most common methodology is agile. We talk a lot about this one on the show. This separates the application into cycles and delivers a working product for each iteration. It involves creating a succession of releases where testing creates a feedback into the development of the next iteration. The biggest issue here is if the customer doesn't really know what they need or gets lost in the weeds of a feature, they can completely derail the process going off down a rabbit trail. Another model is the Iterative
1: model, which is pretty similar to Agile. In it, the development team quickly creates an initial version of the application. Through testing, it is improved on each successive version or iteration. If left unchecked, this process can eat all the resources that you have.
0: There are many more methodologies within SCLC which are based on those listed above. Most of them try to solve a particular problem found in one of the previous ones we've mentioned. And each one could be its own episode, really. Like we could really break these down and deep dive into them uh, just to get to all the details.
1: There are seven stages in the software development lifecycle. What they're called varies a little bit depending on who you ask. But in this episode, we'll take a look at each stage in order from planning to maintenance. For each one, we'll discuss the focus, challenges, and outputs of that stage. So,
0: first off is the planning stage. Planning focuses on the scope of the project. This involves resource allocation, both human and material. So what people are going to be involved in the project, what materials, what you know, what servers are going to be involved, what SDKs, what IDEs, all that stuff is taken into account here.
1: Yeah, and this can even include stuff like what cubicles, like where are these people going to sit Yeah, in in a lot of cases because like you may be hiring people to bring in to do this stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. I know um, one place that I have some friends who work when they're planning a project, the planning phase puts together the team and then the way their teams work is they put them all in the same room and then divide the room up, okay,
1: into so like, like they have like sub yeah, team rooms,
0: mhm,
1: yeah, I've worked at a couple of places that did that. You're really going to get into the weeds on this when you start planning, like planning is its own discipline, just by itself, yeah, the challenge really comes into it when you have to try to identify the problem and whether you can actually solve it or not. Although I think, you know, if you work for Elon Musk, you maybe (laughs) 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 some of those things get a little wavy. I think in places, like whether they look at feasibility or uh, whether it's, you know, they're solving two problems or solving really crazy things. So, But you really get into a lot of cost-benefit analysis here. And that's one of the big challenges is actually quantifying This thing helps, but does it help as much as the cost of development is going to hurt?
0: Mm -hmm. The team here determines the costs and risks involved in the project, and then they compare that with the benefit of completing it. Right. And there are several different types of feasibility checks for the team to assess. The economic check asks if the project can be completed based on the budget they have for it.
1: Right. And the legal checks ask about the regulatory requirements and laws uh, within the business domain. So, like, can we do this without getting sued to oblivion?
0: Technical checks ask if the current systems can support the new application. So, you know, we're currently running on Linux servers. So can we support a .NET application? Well, maybe the answer is now yes. yeah, I say, and like, if you write it in .NET Core, yes, you can.
1: Yep. The schedule check asks if the project can be completed on a given schedule, and this typically is not as soon as possible. Like it's a real schedule, not you know just management anxiety type scheduling.
0: Outputs of planning are project plans, schedules, cost estimations, and procurement requirements. And your project
1: managers will collaborate with development, operations, and security to ensure that all perspectives are represented in the project plan. Hopefully. Mm. These plans will include strengths and weaknesses of the current system, provided that there is one,
0: and of the proposed
1: new application.
0: So the reason I put that that way is sometimes this planning or this project may be updating or adding new features to a system. Sometimes you come into planning to maintain an existing system. Sometimes you're building a new application that's running on an older system. Sometimes you're building something completely new. So there's a lot of leeway here in this planning and your output is going to depend on these things that are determined in planning. Like what are we building? Are we going to use an older system? Are we going a whole new direction? Are we moving from you know doing stuff in house to hey we're going to we're going to try cloud applications and serverless architecture with this so we're going a whole new level here so it's just like you know there's a lot to this planning of like all right what direction are we going here
1: right of course now your next phase is your requirements and requirements gathering and all that fun stuff and the focus here is on Getting your requirements together from the stakeholders and the subject matter experts or SMEs. Uh, this involves communication between the business and the development teams, and both parties have to be involved here.
0: Yeah, you can't do this. I've seen where people have tried to do the requirements with just the business team, or the only person from the development team was the business analyst. Right, which they're not really a development team member because they're not
1: yeah and a lot of orgs i mean there's there's places where like you get promoted out of development into that, yeah or into a role that's like that, but most of the time it's like, yeah th- this guy can't sling code, so we're gonna put him over here, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: he, he can't translate the requirements in a way that the developers can understand it and still produce what the mm-hmm. business people want
0: oh i've I've worked with business analysts who don't even know what c sharp is. They have no idea what goes you know, on. you would think you would think at least in Music
1: City they would have an incorrect definition of that, if nothing else. But um, they call you it
0: D flat. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I got that you joke. Know, <laughs> you did. That was good. I'm yeah. I'm proud of you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Boy, there's a long conversation teaching me that.
0: <laughs> yes, it was. I remember that.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> business analysts who can speak both the language of business and the technical bits are invaluable here. And they'll they have to bridge the gap and kind of act like translators in helping the development team understand what is needed by the business.
0: All right, Let me just point out to you guys how important this role is. Our very first episode. Episode number one. Well, I guess our very first would be episode zero, which was Hello World. But our first actual episode was about talking tech with non-technical coworkers, managers, people like that. Yeah. Like we started this podcast on that topic because it was so important. That was the first thing we wanted to come across.
1: Yep. And there's a good reason for that. Uh the big reason for it is risk reduction.
0: Mm-hmm. This just the main challenge at this stage.
1: Yeah, well, and and guess who that lands on? It lands on the person talking between those two groups of people. Yeah. Because they have to catch the risk that one group is expressing in terms that the other group doesn't understand or the risk that somebody's ignoring
0: mm-hmm. from
1: one group and the other group doesn't see it.
0: Yeah, and it's not just because as developers, we tend to see it, at least I used to before I started getting involved with like in a deeper level at work, I used to just see it as one-sided where, oh, they're not seeing all these issues, these like development risks or these things that they're not considering from a development standpoint. But on the business side, they have risks. They have issues that they have to have addressed. Right. And a lot of their issues, you can't
1: just throw more cash at either. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's like regulatory. You're, you're going to be shut down if you do this wrong. Right. Yeah, it's, it's definitely eye-opening when you're in those meetings for the first time.
0: Mm-hmm. You
1: know, the big thing here is that you identify risks and you document them for the purposes of later phases. So you make sub-plans for each risk and then you try to figure out how you're going to reduce its impact on the project. Because you want to get the lowest risk, highest reward possible. Mm-hmm. As opposed to the Silicon Valley strategy here lately, which seems like make something up, ignore the risks, ignore the legal environment, and scale. So that when you do finally get nailed, you get nailed so bad you don't survive.
0: Mm -hmm. Outputs are going to vary based on the particular methodology that you're using. So usually your methodology is predetermined. It's what your company is used to. I have come in to places where they were making a transition from Waterfowl. Waterfowl? From Waterfowl? waterfowl? (laughs) To duck typing, yes. <laughs> wow. I like that's the second time or third time today I have like done that. I know you um, sound like the guy that reads
1: the uh, very hungry caterpillar, Eric Carl.
0: Yeah, but uh, I don't know. Just I'm kind of stuffy. So, what I was getting at here is I have come into organizations where they were making that transition, especially doing consulting and stuff from the waterfall to agile and just making that transition and helping them with that is a big deal.
1: Yeah. And nobody goes the other way because, you know, there's the song that says, don't go chasing waterfall.
0: Stick to the uh, rivers and the streams that you're used to. (laughs) (laughs) There should be a parody
1: that needs to happen. Somebody make one, send it to us. We'll do something.
0: I might make it myself. I just can't sing. i got to find a singer for it. All right. But uh, so getting getting into this, well, Waterfall typically produces a document listing out all the requirements for the entire project. Right. From the
1: get-go. Whereas Agile understands that nobody actually knows. (laughs) Nobody knows the color of the bricks until they slam into the wall.
0: And there, a backlog of tasks is created that can be adjusted as you go along. So from here, the next stage is designing. Use of established architectural and design patterns becomes the focus here. An architect may use a framework such as TOGAF or the Open Group Architectural Framework. Uh, I took a TOGAF class a while back. It was interesting because I'm just like, all right, what's the point like from the from a like an heads down coder perspective you're like why like this seems are just you doing of dumb. This? Yeah. yeah like this is a waste of time but when you look at it from the business perspective and from like management like from the before it gets to the programmer perspective like now i look back at that class and i'm like man i wish i'd paid better attention in that class because I can see how that's useful
1: yeah. now. But I don't think you can ever see how it's useful until you have sat through something like that and ignored it and then get hit in the face with it about six months later. Mm-hmm. Like it's not a, you do not learn that at yeah. first interaction. Like it just doesn't that's happen. True.
0: No, but architects use these frameworks to create an application that fits the standards with other applications at the company. Whereas developers determine the design patterns that they're going to use when solving problems, uh, when they get into the actual coding. There may even be some rapid prototypes created to determine the best solution to a problem. So they may say, hey, you three developers, you take this path, you take that path, you take this other path. You got two days, come back with something. We'll see which one we want to go with.
1: Yeah. Or we want to test this idea out. That's the one that, that happens. A yeah. Lot, I get, just get the, I get to do that a lot. I love, you know, my the job. guy that's a giant nerd, like throw him at it, you know, he'll it's do a lunch and learn, you know, like you're getting all the stuff together. Like that's a pretty common, you know, pattern yeah. to deal with that.
0: Um, oh my gosh. My, my boss has realized that that is a, that is my personality. And so I get to do a lot of stuff like that. And I love my job because of it.
1: Yeah. It's fun. For a while and then after, because I used to be like that and then I, I've kind of changed now where I'm almost like half halfway into the business side. Yeah, um, I can see that. Because it's a different set of problems that I find more interesting. But yeah, I used to be like that too, just testing stuff out and you know trying the craziest thing I could come up with. Mm-hmm. The challenge at this stage is to incorporate stakeholders without ostracizing the non-technical members. So you got to get stakeholder input to make sure that your project is actually solving the right problem, but you have to do it in a way that the technical people can use what you output and the technical people are maybe not involved enough to tick off the stakeholders. Yeah. Um, And that's a bigger problem than you think it is, especially if you're coming at it from a dev perspective, Mm -hmm. because you won't see all those other conversations that happen.
0: Stakeholders are going to need to review the plan and, and, had the opportunity to give feedback and suggestions like they need to see where you're going with it because you may have completely misunderstood what they were asking for in the requirements phase
1: yeah and you've also got to be careful here not to write things especially if you're if you're a dev and you're writing things to the stakeholders you don't use dev language right right like i've been in a situation literally where i said hey you know here's the http verb that we're using And I had somebody completely blow an O-ring over, why aren't we using
0: HTTPS?
1: (laughs) I'm not joking. And that's a stakeholder that didn't, you know, they weren't down in the weeds. Like it was, it was my fault as a communicator.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I was laughing at you, not them. Right. (laughs) How was that for you?
1: (laughs) Yeah. But I mean, it's very easy to do that. Yeah. Um, Even if you mean better
0: yeah it's very important they be able to get an idea of the project without being overwhelmed by the technical details,
1: yeah that's why they got but, you there,
0: yeah, and also that's why both a high level and low level design document are going to be created as the outputs here
1: yeah, this is something I, I want to just as an aside, I see a lot of developers act like this is dishonest. It's like, look, this is not too different general ledger account registers with different numbers in it. One for the tax man and one for you, right? Like this Mm. is a summary for the people high up that don't want this stuff. And then a breakdown for the people who have to have it. It's not two documents in opposition. It's just like a really common misconception. And I've seen developers get really like, Oh, that's not honest. You're not telling them that we're, we're using signal R to do this. It's like they
0: don't know what signal R is, bro. Yeah. I haven't had enough experience in the industry to have that conversation with anyone. I guess everyone I've worked with understood that, like, I think in the environment you're in,
1: in particular, there's a bit more focus on process yeah. and on understanding where all the pieces fit versus like the pieces just fit where they land. Like a lot of mm-hmm. small companies. Yeah. Also, I,
0: I don't know, the people I've worked with. So far. Well, you missed the 90s. They, Yeah. They also seem to understand, yeah, like developers are not the same as they were back then either. They also seem to understand that the high level document is, it's not, like you said, it's not in opposition. It's more of like. Cliff notes. Yeah. Cliff notes or an overview. It's like the chapter summary or like the back of the book that tells you what the book's about. Or it's like a
1: doctor saying, I'm giving you an x-ray to do diagnostics and not getting into the weeds on what they're checking for because you don't need to know right now that you might have bladder cancer. It's Mm -hmm. they are just checking stuff.
0: Yeah. Unless you have a background in medicine and then they, like, it it goes back to where you are. If you're, if you have that background, they're going to give you the low level stuff. So like a high level design document gives that overview of the project and sort of its interactions with the existing system. This may include like names, outlines and kind of brief descriptions of each module there, interface relationships, dependencies between those modules and you know even some database information but it's going to be very high level. So it's going to be like schema and table names, maybe a few of the key elements just so they right. kind of get an idea of what's going on. The goal here is isn't is to give non-technical people something they can look at and go, oh, I kind of get where you're going with this.
1: Right. It's a communications device and a, it's also a way to avoid having to field a bunch of calls. Yeah. You know, really, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like any, and this is something I've said before, but any technical document you produce is political. And that's what this thing does is it it deals with people in the place that they're at, not the place that will not serve them.:
0: yeah. Where is your low level design documents? Those are for the technical people. These get into the details of the project. And these are the ones that developers are involved in creating. Uh, they provide information about the functional logic of the modules along with the listings of potential error messages, you know, pathways, things like that, complete details of the interfaces and not just the dependencies but any potential issues with dependency and how those are going to be dealt with. It doesn't provide the code or the solutions for that, but it just says, "Hey, you know, these are the the error message, these are where we're going to go and then the developers come in and solve the, all right, how do we get from point A to point B problem? Right. You know, and then the, the database information gets into the weeds. It includes data types, sizes, things like that.
1: Right. And you don't ever want to show that to the main people because they're not, you're going to end up really having to explain a lot of stuff that's not going to help either you or them. Mm-hmm. So now the next phase, which is what a lot of us think is our entire job, (laughs) Um, and it isn't, Um, and that's the development phase or developing. Uh, The focus of the development stage is on building the application based on the outputs of the previous stages. That's important because if you're not doing based on the outputs, you're just winging it and it's probably not going to go well. Mm -hmm. Now, depending on the SDLC methodology that has been chosen, this may be done as one large block of work or combined with the stages around it in
0: time boxed sprints. Yeah. So if you are doing more of a waterfall methodology, you're going to be handed design documents and then you're going to have a huge block of time to build whatever it is. It's just, here you go. You got six months build the whole thing. Right. Whereas if you're doing more of an agile process, you're going to have while you're developing, they're going to be designing some of the next next things that you're going to be developing in a sprint or two. And you know you, they may be testing what you just developed. They may be testing a sprint behind. It sort of depends on how your team is set up. But there's a sort of iterative process where you have several phases going through at a time. Right.
1: And I've worked in everything from waterfall to, you know, where I am now, like I can fix something and it's in production the next day. Yeah. Where it's just like a, and they're trying to get to continual releases, Mm -hmm. um, which scares the daylights out of me, even though now it probably shouldn't because that just makes me nervous. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, I mean it, you're going to see a a wide variety here, but you know, this is the working phase on all these stages. Um, If the previous stages have been done correctly, then this should be the least complicated piece that you work on. uh, Theoretically. And I know developers really don't like to hear that, but yeah, you know, you're, you kind of have a set of defined goals probably. And yes, the technology is, is difficult in places, but it is at least, broken down well enough where you can understand what you're doing and go do it versus what some of the other people are dealing with. It's like, hey, how do we cut costs? And that's just kind of an open-ended question. The developer's biggest challenges are going to be around assigning or choosing the tasks that they're going to complete. Um, Other issues that may arise revolve around solving problems that do not fit into the existing standards. So for instance, if you're Very much used to the classic three tiered model, and now all of a sudden you need an external service for some reason, and you're breaking out part of the thing into a microservice architecture. That's going to be a pain point for you because your patterns are all built around doing things a different way, and now you've got to change that. And that'll hit you in the middle of a project a lot of times. You know, a lot of times it's just because the process is new or the business technology is new, so it could be. I can remember when WebSockets, you know, kind of started hitting the scene about, I guess it was 2012, 2013 Mm timeframe and people were learning, you know, they were used to stateless web apps and all of a sudden you've got WebSockets and you can have a stateful interaction and you're talking directly to the server and it's, it's faster and the server can push stuff to you and it blew everybody's mind. Like you'll, you'll get hit with this kind of stuff sometimes when you're in the middle of this phase. So what this stage should do is it should produce a viable product or application.
0: Yeah, so if you're doing Agile, then each sprint or each iteration will produce a potentially viable product. And I love the illustration that I I saw once about this where it was in, I think, Scrum Master class when I was getting that certification. But it showed like what people think a sprint or iteration is in Scrum. And it's like, all right, you you start off and you build like a base with a couple of wheels on it, because you're building a car, you base a base with a couple of wheels, and then you add a steering wheel, and then you add seats, and then you add an engine, and then you add this, and then you add that. And that's not what it is. It said, you know, what it actually is is all right, well, you start and the first thing you build is a skateboard. Right because it's, it's completely viable. It, it will work. You can put it out there and it will do a job, a function. might may not be all the functionality you needed, but it will do something. And then the next thing you come back and you're like, oh, hey, we only really need two wheels, but we need pedals and a seat. So you build a bicycle. Right. You know, and then you build a go-kart, add a lawnmower engine to it. You know, and yeah, then you build a box car and like it, it sort of iterates up but each one is something that is functional and works. Right. So you can provide
1: value early enough to start offsetting some of the cost of development. I mean, I think that's, yeah. I think the budgeting thing is really a lot of the reason Agile is where it is. It's not so much the development process as it is, hey, this is financially a way to make software work. Yeah. And I think that's oh. really underserved
0: a lot of times. Mm-hmm. Now, On the other hand, waterfall, which agile and waterfall are your two real big differences here. Yeah, it's like Uh,
1: agile ish and waterfall ish. And, (laughs) you know,
0: in waterfall, the team works on development until the application is complete. They build the whole thing out and then toss it over or waterfall over into testing. Right.
1: Yeah. And, uh, you know, initially it, actually more resembled what we call agile now. Um, But Mm -hmm. I think the big thing with waterfall is it tended to be where there was a lot of cost up front. Like, I really feel like the financialization stuff is stuff we should probably get into at some point, but like things were the way they were for a reason and they're not, those reasons are gone now. Um, Yeah. So speaking of reason being gone, the next phase is testing. Testing focuses on delivering a quality product and on making sure that the product is actually stable for a variety of different situations. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to measure quality, and this includes stuff like unit tests, integration tests, performance tests, uh, you know, penetration and security tests, um, and code quality compared to standards. So you've got linting and all that kind of stuff in the mix here, too.
0: So when tests fail or defects are found, the application returns to development to fix those issues. So I'm not very familiar with Waterfall. Now I know how in Agile, specifically Scrum, which is where I have most of my experience in training, I've done some Colin Bond as well. Uh, but with Agile, because it's so iterative, you will have not maintenance, but like bug fix tasks pop back up. So like if you're testing within your sprint, which I I really don't suggest because it doesn't let you really focus on what you're doing. And then the QA team, in my experience, they tend to pester the development. So I, I personally think it's better to test a sprint behind the development so developers can truly focus on developing um yeah either, the the, either that or
1: go continuous,
0: yeah, yeah well, that that's if you're not doing scrum, you would right. go continuous. so that that's a I guess a different methodology there if you're doing like Kanban or something that that's a different idea here. but will, in your experience with waterfall or water fail, as some people call it, waterfowl. Waterfowl, as I tend to call it, apparently. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you
1: know, it's just like a <laughs> bunch of geese flying in and crapping all over everything. Yeah, so actually, that your, is management largely resembles that in waterfall uh, setups. Wow, um, you said
0: that, not I. Yeah, they're biting uh, you. I mean, they awful. Um, <laughs> so, funny. but in that, in your experience with that, I'm just curious. I mean, y'all, this is unscripted. I just want to know how do they handle finding
1: defects. Well, they find them all at once and they drop them on your desk all at once and tell you how bad you suck all at once instead of, you know, like you dumping that out. I mean, it's you get the fun development for months and months and months or however long it takes. And then mm-hmm. stuff goes to testing. You're semi dead in the water or maybe writing docs. And then testing comes back with everything that's wrong. And then you got to go try to fix everything that's wrong. And then you iterate again on that. And what ends up happening a lot of times is you'll have one error that causes three or 400 other errors. And all of those are separate reports and they all have to be confirmed to not be a problem
0: by the next testing run. That happens in uh, agile as well. I've had that where they had like, I've had, I think up to four different bugs reported. And when I, dug into it, I was like, all four of these are the same problem. Yeah, But with Agile, because of the way it is, we were actually able to combine those bugs into one bug. And then it only had to be tested that way.
1: Yeah, whereas this, the whole complexity gets built up like you would over six months of Agile without the feedback loop. And so yeah. you're, you're so much further away from your goal by the time you get to the end of that because you deviated that it's it's really more work to do waterfall as is typically done.
0: Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I will say this, and it's just been my experience, a key to good testing is to be able to continue testing other areas of the application or even the same area after a defect is found. I mean, unless it is a, hey, I click the submit button and nothing happened, or a, or the app just doesn't come up, <laughs> yeah. Um unless it's something like really breaking you should be able to continue testing. If you can't continue testing because the input fields are not in the order you expected them to be in. Yeah. Or there's a typo on the label of the input field so I can no longer test anything else in this application. Right. And and you've been told that,
1: that do that or they write really fragile tests and yeah. they're chained together in a way that you would not do regular software and so yeah mm-hmm. that that's definitely it's something that comes up although you don't see it as much now as you used to it used to always be like that yeah yeah and i think the biggest challenge in testing generally is consistency so testers need to be able to ensure that the tests are run regularly and they're not skipped or ignored. So like this thing of, oh, we only touched this part of the system. We're only testing that part of the system. When developers say that, they're lying. Mm-hmm. If you recompiled, you touched <laughs> the whole system.
0: No. What this means is you need to be rewriting tests when a new version or build comes from development. And honestly, y'all, the best way to avoid these issues and ensure that tests are run every time a new version comes from development is to automate them. Yeah. That's one of the things I love about um, working in .NET, Microsoft's testing suite is that when I make a change to my application, I can just go and run all the tests at once.
1: Yep. And I'm doing that on my own stuff. And I've built test harnesses and all that. Man, it is great to be able to just go, yeah, I didn't break anything. Because then Mm -hmm. I I can really be aggressive with refactoring in a way that I could not do without that.
0: Yeah. Also, I'll be honest, a massive, massive code smell. I mean, you know, we're talking gas mask code smell for me is if I look at unit tests and they've been commented out.
1: Yeah. Honestly, code that's commented out and left in the code base is a code smell for me. I look at it and just go, this person's sloppy. They don't understand source control. There are other problems. It's just like if I see obvious floating point issues, or,
0: you know, like (laughs) there's just certain
1: things that you see that you're like, yeah, this isn't going to go well. You know, the target output should be to create bug free software that runs as expected by the end of this stage um, with Mm -hmm. all the back and forth and everything. Because when it goes to production, it needs to be free of issues because otherwise you're going to have a bug that's going to cost you money one way or another.
0: Yeah. I mean, another part of testing is making sure that the application actually meets the needs of the client as well. So I've had the experience where development, we built exactly what the acceptance criteria said. We built it exactly what was said, hey, build this. Testing tested it and it worked exactly as it was supposed to. Then it got to UAT and the client was like, oh, well, can I be like the old app? Let me run this report. We're like, you never told us you needed that report. You know? Um, And that that was a failure earlier on. But I've also been there where we built something and the tester goes, hey, this isn't what the client needs. And we're like, that's what they said they needed. Yeah. <laughs> and like sometimes this is where you can get these these arguments between development and QA on all right what what are we supposed to build here.
1: Yeah, and that's when you take it straight to the client. I mean, the big thing is to get that feedback loop as tight as possible and as accurate as possible. Yeah. Now, this doesn't just involve testing the code and quality assurance, um but like actually really doing real user acceptance. Like you sit somebody down and you walk through the app. You don't send them a link and go check it out because they never do that. Mm -hmm. They do it halfway and then blame you when it's over with. Like you've got to be kind of sly about this and go, yeah, we're going to really test it and you're going to be a big part of this app and it's going to be so cool because you're going to get to pick what you want the thing to do and you're going to get them involved.
0: Yeah. Now, this is how, like I said, we found out that, oh, they needed all this stuff that they hadn't told us about because you know you have one person from one part of a business doing something and in there testing it, uh, or I say in there testing it, telling you what they need, and then you have someone from another part of the business testing it and they're like, oh, but we could generate this Excel sheet with this information in it. I can't do this. And I need that to send to like management and these major high ups. And you're like, Oh, well that wasn't part of our requirements. So we need to go back and look at that. And that's what like, to me, that's when I think of user acceptance testing, I think of that situation where it was like, Oh, you're sending this that high up the chain. Yeah, we should we have gotta, known that early on. Yeah, but um, the person who we were working with to come up with the requirements wasn't involved at all in that process, didn't even know that happened.
1: Yeah, you got to talk to a real user of the system. I mean, that's something that I see happen well, a lot the, too.
0: That's the thing we did. It was just like, it was users in different parts of the system. So yeah. you got to get multiple people involved here and you got to get like, fi- like there's a process to user acceptance testing and finding out like this is where it's why I really like kind of the agile process because you'll find out oh hey we've been focusing on this one area all along and that's maybe it's 10% of their business <laughs> yeah. yeah and you find that out early on rather than you know six months a year into a project
1: yeah my favorite is when the senior VP of you know what's them above decides that they need this app and you build the entire app and six months in, they show it to the people that are down the line from them. And you find out that it's completely wrong and that Mm -hmm. it's based around that, that SVPs understanding of how the process worked before HIPAA, Um, (laughs) you know, just like, (laughs) yeah, you know, really old, you know, like dude, this is completely irrelevant.
0: Like, Mm -hmm. so the next stage is deployment. And the deployment phase focuses on getting the application out to the public. It may be a limited release where user feedback is used to improve the application, like a beta or just a, a, a something new that is smaller. Ideally, deployment is fully automated and almost invisible. However, realistically, um, in some industries,
1: regulatory requirements make that completely impossible. So, manual approvals are needed. So, if you're touching health information, financials, Mm -hmm. anything governmental, um, anything with a change control process, anything that touches like stock type things, you know, like publicly traded stuff, anything with, you know, electrical, radiological, any of those kind of things, you're going through a process. It's not going to be invisible, except in the sense that it's an invisible wall that you smack into.
0: (laughs) I like that. In either case, Continuous deployment using release automation tools needs to be your standard.
1: Right. You don't want to do the thing of like manually clicking in Visual Studio to build your deployables and then dragging them out to a folder and then FTPing them somewhere and then RDPing into the box and manually clicking on the thing and going through an installer on a production server. Like that should not be happening.
0: No. Making sure the code runs and the application functions in production is the biggest challenge at this stage. Testing environments really need to replicate production environments. Unfortunately, they don't always. If the application depends on other apps or packages which have not been moved up to production, then there are going to be issues. I ran into this not long ago with uploading files where the application that we were, or the API that we were calling in test and dev had been updated, but that update hadn't made it through all the testing to get to production before (laughs) our application had. I really think
1: dependency management with microservice architectures is a really ugly problem because it just doesn't feel like the tooling is there yet. You know, it's, it's like, it's like when we dealt with DLL problems in like the old you know C plus plus days. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's that kind of feel to it. So yeah, I I get it, and it is a real challenge. Um, you know, when your testing environment does not match production, you're not testing. Yeah, um, that's you know, very it's true. like oh, we tested this parachute, except we never threw anybody out of a plane with it. We just kind of tested on the ground, and yeah, it, it, we're pretty sure it opens. You're, you're good. Mhm-, yeah you know it's it's not a good place to be um unless you're wanting to make a
0: meteor crater out of yourself. No security in production may also be different than in test, and so permissions need to be checked. I've run into this problem. Honestly, most of these points are problems that I've actually run into. Problems in deployment are rather frustrating as a lot of times they have to do with configuration issues. And I know Will has run into this because I've heard his ranting about it. i am going to after I get off yeah. this call. <laughs> yeah. So, y'all, the goal here is to get the application moved into the production environment. If the application depends on something not in the production environment, then that either needs to be added to the environment or the application needs to go all the way back to development Go through testing again and everything.
1: Right. And you need to be able to know that you you don't have everything in production that you need before it's in production in a bad state. Yeah. Um, ideally, just a thought, you know, that's kind of how we mature. People like to do things. And it has to work the same as in test and development.
0: Yeah. So speaking of in production in a bad state, the final stage here is maintenance. Right, the dotage of the app.
1: So we wait for <laughs> it to die for thirty years, and then find out that it's getting a service pack. Uh, the focus of the maintenance <laughs> stage is to ensure that that the needs continue to be met by the application. You know, businesses are going to grow and change over time, so the apps that support that business need to be able to adjust to the changes that occur in the business and the regulatory environment, you know, security environment, all those kind of things if the needs placed on an application change or new needs arise and the word if is completely unnecessary, the maintenance stage is there to address those changes. I guess it's maybe not completely unnecessary. I mean, theoretically, like you chuck a satellite at Neptune, you know, like, you know, it's in space. Like it's not going to suddenly be in water <laughs> unless you're, <laughs> unless your scientists are really confused and really like Greek mythology. Um, but wow. Why, Yeah, once the application is deployed, three things are going to have to be addressed. Bug fixes, upgrades, and enhancements. Now, yeah. you are going to find bugs because testing does not consider a particular scenario or the users found something that wasn't considered a bug in testing. Um, you know, and part of your bug really is having users um because <laughs> like people people will break stuff like you will you will get a user like I guarantee you if you have more than 100 users one of those guys can break an anvil in a sand pile and he's logging in right now
0: <laughs> You know what's what's crazy is that's so true I mean it's it's cr- like you would not think it until it's happened to you
1: Yeah I mean the guy that's like drunk and just like face rolls across the keyboard and accidentally SQL injects your app yeah that'll happen
0: you know what's what's great though is when you have a QA that does stuff like that yeah (laughs) I'll I am I am not kidding I worked with a QA and I absolutely adore this lady she she's a doll but I worked with this QA and she would find the most random things and it's like we could not like We had to have this conversation. I'm like, I believe what happened happened to you. I cannot replicate it. And I can't figure out why it's happening to you. Yeah, it's like if Um, I run this app off of a
1: floppy disk. Now, bear in mind, this is mm old-timey. If I run this app off of a floppy disk, and while it's on this screen, I eject the floppy disk or I disconnect the cable inside the box and then select this menu item. This thing breaks in a way that I don't expect. I mean, I've seen testers that do stuff like that. It's, what? (laughs) Yeah. You're better off having those than having the users that do that and then call you. Mm -hmm. Because that's one thing we as developers want to avoid is social interaction
0: that is forced upon us. (laughs) So zero day vulnerabilities or deprecation of support for a product used in development may require an application to be upgraded to a newer version. So you may have to go in and, you know, change some targets because Microsoft is no longer supporting Windows XP. Yeah,
1: or because Chrome is more stringently enforcing uh, cross-site cookie policies, Mm -hmm. which is happening right now. I've got several friends who've got major problems on their websites because of that. And yeah, they got to push a fix
0: out. Or the upgrade to TLS 1.2. That was a big deal for us we had to go into some of our really old applications and upgrade them or put in patches. Yeah. (laughs) It was interesting. We had uh, several months there where it was like all hands on deck working on this. Like projects got put on the side because this had to be dealt with. So yeah, yeah, I mean, that that happens. And the other thing is enhancements. Uh, Add new features to the existing application. And this could be from user request new regulatory requirements, or even changes in the functionality of the business.
1: Yeah. The output of the maintenance stage is a better application in production. Now, this will involve going back through the previous stages for the change being made. You don't uh, test in production. No tipping. This is not a restaurant. (laughs) What makes this a life cycle is that this stage leads back into the planning loop to make the change. Now, depending on how you view it, this stage either encompasses all the previous ones or restarts the process for each change.
0: Yeah. I like to think of it as sort of uh, recursive functions here in like maintenance. The maintenance phase is the recursion that calls back to the whole SDLC and it's like the process starts back. Um, sort of depending on where you are and what what your internal processes are, but it can be thought of like that. Now, y'all, as developers, especially early on in our careers, we may only see the bottom portion of this cycle. Most of the time, we aren't interested or involved in the high-level decisions about projects and which ones to pursue. However, it's a good idea to understand what's going on so that you know what has already been done before work comes your way. More advanced and lead developers may be involved in some of the decisions or at least consulted on them. And you guys can use this information to help you understand what your managers are needing at each stage of this process. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well,
1: I'll also add that in any environment, certain phases of this process are held in higher regard than others right like I've worked on systems where the maintenance programmers were considered like the best devs that they had because they had a system that was really hard to mess with and so those were the people that had to go in and fix things and change things and extend things and that was considered the elite of the elite I've also worked places where the people writing uh, you know Greenfield code were considered the elite of the elite Um, So, Mm -hmm. you know, development forward to the maintenance level, you know, there's, there's going to be some kind of degree of favoritism in your organization towards one of those phases. Figure out what that is. And if you want to get advancement, that's the one you go for. Now, back before the development process, you know, you go into the planning phases and all that, the further back you go, the higher up you are. Just by definition, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's the people higher up making those decisions. So if you are trying to make an impression with management that gets you a promotion eventually, you need to aim towards being useful in those meetings so that you do get called into the meetings and you're the only dev in there with a bunch of managers. That's a really good strategy for increasing your pay rate over time, over the long haul. So just be aware of these phases and understand what they mean to you, not as necessarily a developer because you need to know that anyway, just do your job. But, understand how I can leverage those pieces to get myself to where I want to go. And that's all I got. Stand by for Titanfall. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Stand By For
0: Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. The intro music for IOTs is Hillbilly Hip Hop by Jason Belcher. For references, show notes, and to sign up for weekly emails with extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod and like our page on Facebook to keep up with news about the show. Catch us each week as we broadcast live talking about what's going on in the tech world and answering listener questions. Learn more about all
1: of our shows and groups by going to completedevelopernetwork.com where you'll find links to Junior Developer Toolbox, Developer Launchpad, and our other communities.